This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everyone. It's a rainy afternoon in San Diego, the one rainy afternoon of the year, we hope. Uh, it's my special pleasure. We've had a number of introductions, and it's my special pleasure to make, I think, the most important introduction, and that is our guests and person I'd like to talk with for the next hour, uh, my friend Anthony Davis. Let me tell you a little about Anthony first. Uh, born 1951 in Patterson, New Jersey. It's a part of a territory my family comes from as well. <laughs> Sorry, I, grew, uh, I lived in Harlem too. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Uh, Anthony is one of uh, a generation of artists who really just defy description. Some of his albums list him as a jazz pianist. Some of his uh, compositions, he's obviously a composer. Uh, we're here to talk about Central Park Five, his most recent opera, but he's also the composer of numerous other operas. Uh, 1986 was the premiere of X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. Under the Double Moon, opera followed in 1989. Tanya, the telling of the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, uh, occurred and premiered in 1992. Amistad, the tale of a slave insurrection aboard ship, premiered in 2009. A colleague of ours, Alan Havis, uh, wrote the libretto. Lear on the Second Floor, 2012, a reconstruction, a very interesting reconstruction of the King Lear story. And the subject of today, the composition from 2019, Central Park Five. Um, Anthony, welcome. Well, thank you. I think my first uh, question to sort of get this uh, sorted out is, why did you pick the medium of opera to concentrate on. I know you've written instrumental music as well, but obviously the less... Well, uh, opera is something I was thinking about. I think I first had the bug and the idea of composing an opera, and the, actually before I ever heard an opera. And that was, uh, I was in 10th grade. <laughs> I was in 10th grade. I was in, living in Italy uh, for 10th grade, and I had this wonderful philosophy teacher uh, and uh, who decided to do a course on existentialism. So um, I, I, had, I was reading Kierkegaard and uh, Nietzsche, and it's through Nietzsche and Kierkegaard that I became interested in opera. The more the idea of it, you know, the idea of uh, when Nietzsche described uh, in The Birth of Tragedy, you know, so the Dionysian and the Apollonian and the collision of those two concepts of art. And I thought it mapped really well to this idea of, of the African-American experience because of the, the nature of the, uh, see, think of the Dionysian as the improvised, as being, being the whole tradition from the African di- diaspora, and then the Apollonian is mapping onto the kind of European tradition of form, formal traditions. So, so I mean, in a way, I thought he was more apt to describe what an African-American opera would be rather than what a German opera like Wagner's would be. So you describe, your, you describe this work as an African-American opera. Well, I think it, it comes from that experience, and it comes from the... Uh, tri- well, I think my intention when I was naive intention when I was 15 years old was that I was going to reinvent opera and make it into this new form that would have uh, both in- improvisation and and also the, the formal concept of opera in it as well, but, the, but, but that it would have this, this dy- dynamic energy coming from, from, coming from that, uh, that experience. And, and I wanted to tell stories 
that related to the African-American experience. So initially, I think the first idea I had for an opera was to do The Invisible Man as an opera. Um, that would I, lend itself to the music. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah for, you know, for Ralph Ellison's uh, novel, but um, that, I wasn't really ready to do it at that point, so I was, I was still, you know, so I was getting together my bands and I started doing suites, and, uh, but I, always in the back of my mind I thought I would try to do an opera. Well, that's, that's an interesting point, because even with your, your instrumental music, the idea of writing in suites or, or providing narrative Yes. I mean, there's always this underlying story behind your music. So maybe in a natural way, going to opera was a natural yeah. outcome. Well, it was. And, and I was, when I was at Yale, I went to Yale for uh, my undergrad, and uh, I, I, had, I took a course that was supposed to be 19th century music with Robert Bailey. And Robert Bailey was a renowned Wagner scholar. Yeah. So the whole course was Wagner. You know, <laughs> I, should, I mean, that part of the night. Forget about piano music. You know, I, I did play. You know, I was playing Beethoven and all that stuff. You know, Brahms. Forget that. So, so he would do like Kalmarie Weber and Wagner and then Strauss, and that was 19th century. I said, wow, okay. So, so, uh, so I was kind of force-fed Wagner to 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 a lot of degree, and so I it sort of um, so I began writing suites with light motifs and all this stuff. I think I saw an interview with you um, where you said that opera is not a realistic, let's see if I got the quote correctly, opera is not a realistic form. Right. Uh, time is suspended. But how does, that, how does that figure in the story of the Central Park Five? Well, I think because you can delve into the emotional world, the emotional world, and also what lies behind it, all the things that, that lie behind it. So you're not, in, in a way, I, 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 certainly with opera, we're not, we, we're, we're so flexible with how we do with time. Time can stop, or time can move forward very rapidly. So I, I felt that it was a way of, uh, uh, because you know, also just a conceit that, every, that people have to sing everything. They're singing everything. It takes it out of the, the, the realism, the realistic realm, into something else. And uh, so I was, I was very interested in, and then also the, the idea of how music references Things from the recent past, you know. I was so I was thinking about in constructing Harlem, you know, Har- the Harlem of the Central Park Five, what that would be in ter- terms of music and what Harlem means to me musically too. And the then also uh, the, the 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 dynamism of having you know, these five men sing, five young men sing together in a way that that you might might recall, you know, some of the doo-wop groups or some of the. You know the, how 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 uh, vocal groups de- de- developed in it, you know. Well, before we talk more specifically about Central Park, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but <laughs> I, I was uh, thoroughly enjoying what you have to say. Maybe we should take a look at a, a, okay. a, a clip that sort of captures it for those who may not have seen the opera. Some you have something to fear. Is that what you said here? Yes. Okay. So we get a little bit of time to get it. Yeah. Where you I think the Central Park Five, the opera, is a is a crucial story in our culture right now. First of all, this story is still relevant, which is very unfortunate. But I think. Um, we need to realize that and accept it and acknowledge it and do something about it. You can't hear enough of this story and stories like this because you have to remember that this is 
one of many stories that actually caught national attention. I also think that it's important to bring it in this format, in this genre, because there are people that wouldn't hear it if they didn't come to this opera, and it's also exposing opera to a new audience of people that already know the story, but are coming to see an opera. Opera is kind of like history in motion, um, and especially this, this opera is about truth. It's the retelling of what happened in 1989. The Central Park Five deals with these relations with race, it deals with relations of innocence. This piece has to deal with the passion and the heart of, of these people. Then you add Anthony Davis and his style and his voice to that and you just have gold. In the case of the Central Park Five, uh, it's something that I remember very distinctly. I'm living in New York at the time. I lived in New York in the 80s. When it came up to today to, talk, to, to do an opera, I was fascinated with that, A, because it, a lot of times I've, I've gone to subject matter that's sort of where there's a collision of culture. Anthony Davis does a wonderful job of juxtaposing the position of not knowing where you are by changing the meter. The music is really representative of 1989. Anthony Davis has been a master at um, highlighting the dissonance. So if you're not hearing it in the vocal line, you're definitely hearing it in the music and vice versa. But there are also sections that are hummable. There are also sections that kind of sound like music that was happening at the time. I think when one of the unique features of my music is its rhythmic conception, and that rhythm propels the drama. We are here, we don't care. We are the young ones who keep coming. The Central Park Five story is five youth in Harlem. These five young boys who were all between 14 and 16 and that were accused of doing a heinous crime, a rape and beating in Central Park in 1989. And, and there was uh, an outcry for justice. They choose these five young boys since they already had them in police custody. Implicated them, indicted them, charged them. They go to prison for it. The point is that they were charged with a crime that they did not commit. These real, real people who spent time in prison for a crime they didn't commit, it tears you up, it tears you up inside. And, um, but we know we have a job to do, and that job is to get the word out. That's something that is not political. Uh, it is something that really speaks to the heart of men and women everywhere. I think it's important that we, we revisit these moments to think and look deeply into it. And through music, I think I can try to get people to empathize with the five. To, to imagine that they are one of the five, that this they happened to them. My mind, my happiness, taken I think audience members will have an opportunity to really be honest with themselves about the differences of experience in America. But I hope that they will come out of it with a better picture of where we've come from, but how far we have to go to right these wrongs. Having the opportunity of telling this story is, um, it's, it's an honor and a privilege to do, but it's also a duty as well.
this was piece was premiered this year, June 2019. Yes. How long was it in gestation? I mean, from conception. Oh, I to think I started working on it in uh, around 2015, 2014, and um, we did, I did initial performance 2016. That was a kind of first version, and first it was a kind of almost like a workshop performance in, in Newark, New Jersey. That was in uh, 2016. Actually, th- ironically, three days after the election. <laughs> you got a lot of inspiration. Yeah, so it was weird. so it was, it was very funny because uh, when of course uh, I have the character Donald Tr- Donald Trump is a character in the opera, and so uh, when Trump first appeared on the stage, this was on Friday after the Tuesday election, the the whole audience booed. <laughs> Which was great. It was like like being like this Renaissance character, you know what I'll still right. you know, like and, and they booed him when they would when he took his bow at first and then it was then it was great. But he did that was a great performance. You but. got the attention. Yeah. Now you said something a minute ago I wanted to follow up on um opera's probably the most complicated artistic form. I mean, you've got theater with all of its complications, sets, design, makeup, dance. You've got music and orchestra, you have the underlying narrative. And you said a moment ago that you've used improvisation in, in this piece. Now, that's, that's part of your DNA. How did you work improvisation in well, the score? Well, yeah, I, that's been, those? from the beginning, when I, you know, when we, concept of opera, part of it was uh, I wanted the idea of the immediacy, that it, every performance is different. Every performance is unique. And, uh, and also working with, with people who are... Who are, who are Comfortable within the wide range of of that of, of this, that musical tradition. So when I did X, I had a ten piece ensemble of uh, of my of musicians of my uh, who who were who knew my music, you know. Um, and so I've worked over the years with wonderful improvisers like George Lewis and oh, yeah. you know Mark Dresser, who's out here in the audience. Uh, 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 you know, Farona Klaff, a drummer. I mean, so uh, J D. Perrin. So a lot of these people have, uh, I've, uh, over the years, I've, I've worked out, I guess now it's over, over 20 years, almost 30 years of working with people and, and developing my opera projects with, with music, particular musicians in mind. So you just can't hand the score to an orchestra bit? Orchestra yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. I, I, and I have, I have these, and it features different, and I try to tailor it to what they do. I mean, kind of what Ellington does, you know, I mean, to think about what their voice is and what they, what that, what they bring in terms of, their, what their interests, musical interests are. Right, and and that, right. that's been always exciting. In Central Park Five, I had um, a Michael Dessen, who was playing trombone. He's a fantastic trombonist. And he, he was a student here at UCSD years ago, but he's a wonderful musician. And uh, as well as um, uh, Kyle Modell, who's a student of Mark Dressers, who played bass. And, and uh, the great Earl Howard, who plays, uh, does the, did the electronics in the score. Uh, playing Kurzweil, and that that's something we work together on in terms of developing, you know, processes and and also, you know, what uh, what the the kind of sound world that will be part of the opera. Maybe you know, we have a piano, we have your score, we have you. Uh, <laughs> maybe you can give us some sense of how that works. I mean, you were playing on uh, some pieces of the score uh, earlier. Um, how how did you go about wedding that into allow players to take some freedoms and yet keep the whole. On track. Well, sometimes it's more, it's more traditional in terms of the the using using uh, you know certain kind of harmonic world, etc. Um, this particular piece I'm I'm going to play uh, look at uh, comes comes it was part of um, it really comes from a piano uh, clarinet concerto 
I wrote called uh, You Have the Right to Remain Silent, which is kind of appropriate for this. Um, and, uh, and, and when I wrote, when I wrote that piece, it, it was, it was, I wrote it as a feature for a wonderful clarinetist uh, uh, and contra alto clarinetist uh, J.D. Parent, so it was written especially for him. And this featured uh, the, the contra as the lead instrument. And uh, in the opera, I, I use baritone saxophone because it's harder to find <laughs> contralto sax clarinets around usually. So um, this is, um, and and what it was, uh, it, it was kind of in the middle of the of the concerto, and I was I was consciously trying to evoke a little bit of Charles Mingus's musical world, and thinking about thinking about Mingus and. And the, his his approach to harmony, and how he uh, also looking at um, uh, also th- thinking about what Harlem kind of this kind of portrait of Harlem, and that also brought me to thinking about, of course, Duke Ellington, and uh, particularly the Harlem Suite of Ellington, which is uh, uh, one of his masterpieces from the late late 1940s. Uh, this is um, so uh, so it starts has. Um, chord here and then what I, what, what I what, what, it's usually open opens up into a, a duet with the bass and the, and the Kurzweil using electronic stuff so I'll play something around that, around that set. To the aria, (laughs) 
So it, it, it's using a progression that Mingus uses F, that F minor to D flat. I, I think they're like... Pork by hat. Yeah, yeah it's like 20 compositions like that. So it was, it was kind of homage to that. It's a sig- signature. Yeah. Well, it's the signature of Mingus and also um, Ellington, too. Ellington, Ellington Strayhorn. And how do you tell a Harlem story of any kind without Ellington? Yeah, you definitely. I mean, I mean, Ellington. I mean, the, you know, if you go on 106th Street, it's Duke Ellington Street for a reason. Yeah, it's <laughs> a statue of Duke, and uh, and also the uh, later in the in that section when the voice comes in, you hear it's, it comes in a, a descending major third, and I start using that as a kind of motif that comes throughout the opera. So, are there motifs for the? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a very powerful thing to have five black males singing in a quintet pretty much consistently throughout. Yeah. So are they a character? I wouldn't say they're a character. They're differentiated, but they're, they're also, I wanted them to take the opportunity to have them sing together because in a way so that they come together and then, then they have their separate, separate, separate lines and separate things happen at the same time. So it's not as if it, they're, not, they're undifferentiated because part of the thing I was, I was worried about is that... Uh, we would create the sin, that same sin that ended, ended up why they ended up in prison. Because, you know, they, because they were invisible. <laughs> they all look alike, you know. <laughs> no. so, so, but, but their voices are very, very different, and I thought of also, uh, so I did some of that, but also I wanted to take occasion to have them also sing together because the sh- they're, they're real, what, what really joins them together is their pain, mm-hmm. is their suffering and their sense of and, and, and what, what they had to endure. And their injustice. Yes, we have some slides of some of the characters. Maybe you can sort of walk us through what you. Yeah, this is uh, this is when they were in Harlem. They're actually before they they go into Central Park, uh, right here. The first slide. I think go to the next one. This is the mask, and the mask is interesting. And when Richard Wesley, the librettist of the opera, uh, wrote the opera. Um, Originally, actually, didn't have Trump as a character, and he didn't have the district attorney as a character. All those were personified by the mask. This idea of the mask having all these identities. Um, I, I felt that it needed different voices for, for those parts, so we, we began to differentiate those a little bit. But, but the mask is this, in a way, kind of the voice of oppression, the voice of, of the repression of, of uh, 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 it could be from the media, it could be from the police. Could be from you know the criminal justice system, uh, and you see the uh, the director made they made this jacket with uh, you know different. Uh, I, I, these are kind of the more tame things that are on there, but uh, wilding, you know, savages, horror, horror, a lot of the stuff that you saw in the newspaper clippings, mm, etc. Front pages. So so uh, so this kind of uh, how that how the the press kind of scandalized them and, and convicted them in the press. Uh, and that, and and that was part of part of the whole energy of it. Let's see and some all, more. Yeah. Okay. This is when they they started to get ready to go into the street. Going go into the we are they're, we are the freaks. They're, they're singing the song so, We Are the Freaks. So you poached a little R and B. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is this this section of the opera was really funny because I I kept on when I was when we were the, when I was thinking about how am I going to get them into Central Park and and. Uh, what was interesting about it is that part part of this whole situation in New York in 1989 was the fact that it was the, in 1980 was important because it's really the, the when when hip hop went mainstream when hip hop moved from, from Bronx to Manhattan 
And all these, all these kids were, were uh, the, 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 the five were all caught up in, in kind of hip hop culture. So, so to, to, the, to white people in New York, this was a, a threatening, threatening thing. And, and so even the terminology used, like wilding, when they say wilding in the park, it comes from the song Wilding, Wild Thing by Tone Loke. The song, and that's what they were singing. They were singing "Wild Thing," which is a, which yeah, is a, yeah. a hip hop anthem. And uh, so, in the in the media, it became they were wilding in the park. So, uh, and so, and also, eighteen eighty nine was the year that "Do the Right Thing" came out, uh, Spike right. Lee's movie. Right. And there's a great scene in "Do the Right Thing" where where Radio Rahim enters the pizza parlor with his boombox. Right. He's playing. Uh, Yes, he's playing public enemy right. on his confrontation. Box. Yeah, and it's a confrontation, and Danny Aiello t- picks up a baseball bat and smashes the boombox. So my theory is that it, that in terms of the larger expression of it, that these five, that when they put these five in prison, they were putting Radio Rahim in prison. That's gotcha. what that's what that's what he's doing. And actually, you see in the, some of the protest signs that they showed in a video earlier that that. The, the white protesters who were who were calling for the death penalty for the, for the Central Park Five, they had posters saying "Do the right thing." Reversal. Reversal. Taking what Spike had done, do the right thing, and now do the right thing was was to execute the five. Well, the same is happening with the content of the character. Yeah. Let's so see some more. So uh, yeah, that, 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 that's when the, begin, the beginning of the interrogation. You can see that see that uh, Rhett's. Uh, uh, Orson playing Ray, Raymond Santana, and uh, that's a district. The f- district attorney uh, in the case, the assistant district attorney, was a woman. There were two women involved in the prosecution of the five, and that was that was a very interesting dynamic to me. And wa- one of the reasons I wanted to have the district attorney as a separate character because I wanted to have a female voice in the opera, but also the fact that uh, for for her it was. It, you know, this the rape and assault of Trisha Mielli was the, the the ultimate in this in this in this idea of the exploitation and abuse of women. So so, you're, so it's pitting it, it, in a way of feminist perspective against a, a, the against a, a, a Black Lives Matter perspective. So that was that was very interesting to me dynamic in the opera. So she feels very righteous in, in condemning them, and 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 therefore jumps to certain conclusions. When when she when the, when she was prosecuting them, and and uh, so I thought that was that was so that was something I wanted to wanted to have in the opera. It's a sense of of what what this righteous indignation was, but at the same time is misplaced. So that's 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 kind of what. And she's still Linda Fairstein, who was the woman who prosecuted the case, was a, also wrote crime novels. She became known as a crime novelist later, and she still is still believes that they were guilty. More of the same in, uh, yes, interrogation. Yeah, interrogation of this Yusuf Salam uh, uh, playing guy playing Yusuf Salam character. So, go ahead. Okay, that that's uh, the Donald Trump. You know, we have to remember this is 1989, so it's not Trump today. It's more like Don Jr. because he was more like Don Jr. So it's like Don Jr. Trump. I, my theory is that his political career began with the Central Park Five. I think you're correct. And he exploited, he, he, and his strategy of exploiting the racial divide uh, really started here. And, and, exploit, and, and here, he, you know, he 
put false page ads in all the newspapers in New York calling for the death penalty and uh, uh, support our police, uh, uh, bring back the death penalty. Now, you're, not, you're, you're, making him, you're describing him as the boogeyman of the story, but you also seem to see that character as representative of a broader oh, of course. ethic. Yeah, to bore, I mean, he, he, and that's the scary part. And part of the thing why I wanted, for example, a kind of a chorus behind him. Because this idea of, uh, and also, sort of, uh, it, what's interesting, I, I, and I love writing characters like this. You know, sometimes if looking behind, what, what, what is the allure? What, is the, what, what attracts people to the flame? You know, what, what, and obviously, it has appeal. Yeah. I mean, and so, so that, that's when you really look cl- carefully at that, then you get closer to how dangerous it really is. If you just make fun of it, if it's just like, it's just humorous, just, you know, like Saturday Night Live sketch, and that kind of puts us at a safe distance. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize how, how pernicious and how, how threatening to, to, to people he is, really is. So, so in, in this case, you know, when, uh, when, I, when he has, and, and I use the fact that he re- repeats himself all the time. It was, it was really fun for me to write his, write his music because um, uh, someone asked me to describe how do, you, how do you write for Donald Trump? One of my classmates from Yale said, well, how do you write for Donald Trump? And I said, well, it's easy. He's a tenor. He has to be a tenor because you hear his voice. Second, secondly, uh, he, he repeats himself a lot and he never completes a sentence. Never completes a sentence. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so uh, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't actually, the librettist didn't actually not complete a sentence. It's a making sure a few. But, but, but I, I think but the idea of the repetition and, and also how that resonates with, with his followers. Do you think uh, having an actual character, Donald Trump on stage, you know, despite the fact he is a historical figure, uh, takes away from the scariness, meaning this is, uh, that it's possible for an audience to attribute all of their hate and anxiety to this character and not to the circumstance? I was worried about a little bit about that. I mean, and somewhat with the, the director, because the director went for the humor a little bit. But you need a little humor because it, it was, in a way, the story was so dark that, uh, for example, uh, one of the scenes Trump has when he's, he's talking on, on his cell phone, then imagine a 1989 cell phone, which is pretty big, this big thing, on, on, a, on a golden toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, I meant so that, that's a kind of funny arrogance, and, and you sort of see, you know, his Trump Tower apartment kind right. of thing. But some of that humor, I, th- I think, was necessary in order to bring some levity to to the opera. But uh, it, it detracted a little bit by how dangerous he really is. And and, and the way I the way I played it actually was not so much for laughs, but for the fact that you know uh, what 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 he was saying, you know, and and. And how how they were look, he looked at the the black community and 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 also the fact the the larger dynamic of of uh, the battle for uh, gentrification in New York you know that Central Park the Central Park is in a way the middle of the, the boundary between the Upper West Side the and, and Harlem yeah the meta message we have some more this is the mass character now as a policeman. And now it's part of the interrogation. You see the district attorney and the mask interrogating, uh, uh, in this case, the Antron and, and uh, Raymond. And you spe- and the script uh, the spells mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E. Right. 
not M-A-S-K. Right, exactly. And I think because Richard, when he wrote it, was thinking about almost the Renaissance figure of the mask, you know, that would fig- figure in Renaissance opera and Renaissance theater. And uh, I think I expanded it to be much more uh, 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 emblematic of the of kind of the racial animus. I you know, when I first saw it, I, I read into that character the trickster Legba. Oh, Legba, yeah. Except well, I, I love the trickster. I mean, he's in every opera I write, you know. But um, uh, I think, um, well, yes, but I think that there's a kind of malice and malevolent aspect that that the trickster can. I mean, he doesn't necessarily show you the right way, but but he's he's amoral, not immoral. And so I think in this case, this this character is much more uh, it's much more pernicious and much more thinking about uh, uh, the ra- racial subjugation, you know. I, so I think that the character is um, and, and and much more real in that sense. I mean, he takes on different guises. He is a, a reporter in the beginning, right. and then he becomes you know a policeman, and he becomes the judge at the toward the end of the opera. He's the judge. And then he's then again he's a, a, a policeman again. So so I think that so it's all these all these uh, figures of authority, whether it's authority in terms of the press or authority in terms of of, uh, of uh, domination and oppression within the black community. And there's a, there's a scene of the mask that is uh, with painted face. So were you literally getting at the idea of a mask, or was that just a two-facedness, one half white, one half black? Oh, that was the earlier version, yeah. Oh, that's, that was the, that's that's the, the early version. That's the early version, and that was with, uh, yeah, actually that was a weird story, because um, uh, I, I didn't want him to, um, the actor did it on his own. <laughs> Beware of creativity. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, the director... Uh, the, the librettist and I all said, please do not paint your face half black, half white. You know, if anything, you should be red, right? I mean, none of that, you know, but... Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. No. So, but he just, so he just did it on his own. You know? So he showed up on stage and with, with, painted up like that, and I said, oh, my God, you know. So, so that was kind of uh, okay. I, uh, I misplaced that. that. But that's, that's I know it. That I know it, that that was that was pretty funny. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about the actual uh, music. Uh, we have a scene, uh, Corey's aria. Maybe you could set that up for us. What, okay. Where is it in the? In the well, story? this is in uh, Act Three of the opera, toward the end of the opera, uh, the, and the aria happens just after Corey's been released from prison, which is he was in prison for thirteen years. The other four were in, were in ju- juvenile detention for seven years. And then Corey, Corey was trial as an adult, adult. He was slightly older than the others, even though in a lot, a lot of respects he's more immature than the others you know, in terms of his maturity. But he ended up going to an adult prison. So he's an adult. He was at Rikers at first, and then went to, to an upstate prison. And so he, after 13 years, he was released from prison. And uh, some of the scenes that happened... Um, uh, he actually met the person who actually committed the crime was Matias Reyes. And mm-hmm. Matias Reyes was a serial killer who had already killed other women in, in their apartments in Harlem prior to his assault. And they had him in custody, you know, when, when they arrested the five, but they never tested him for, to see if he, he matched or anything. They never considered him a, a suspect. 
And so he ended up in Rikers with, with Corey Wise. So they met in person. And they had a fight. They actually had a fight in Rikers Island. That's and, not in the opera. Huh? That fight no, it's not in the opera, no. But, but it, because it, was, it wasn't relevant to it. But later on, uh, um, many years later, uh, uh, Matthias Reyes converted to, became a born-again Christian, and he decided to confess. So he confessed to, to the mm. assault. And uh, so we kind of invented a scene where, where this happens, where, where he's trying to tell Corey that you know, he, should, he, was in, he shouldn't have been in prison. So that's the underpinning of Corey, yeah. Corey's and, opera. And, then, uh, and then, he, then he goes to the mask character and tells him his story of how he committed the assault. Yeah. And then, then Corey's released. Maybe we should see and hear that. Nathan Granner as uh, Corey Wise. That must be very difficult to rehearse. Yeah. I mean, for an actor, singer to yeah, put yeah. themselves into that character. Yeah, he's an amazing performer. He did, uh, and also, also with the orchestra, it's quite, quite a bit different with the whole ensemble. And Maybe you should tell us uh, the names of the singers, the five, uh, hmm? five young men, the actors. Oh, oh the, uh, it's Nathan Granner as Corey Wise. Uh, Let's see. I'm trying to remember all the names. I got them right here. Okay, good. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, Cedric Barry is wonderful baritone as Yusef right. Salam. Bernard Holcomb as Kevin Richardson. Daryl Akon as uh, Antron McRae. And Orson Van Gay as Raymond Santana. And they were, they were wonderful, wonderful performers. I, mean, I was very, 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 very happy with uh, I think I saw another clip of Bernard Holcomb uh, made a comment that this work for him, he thought, brought together two worlds that never spoke to one another. People who, who know opera didn't know the story. People who know the story didn't know opera. I mean, do you think you're sort of uh, bridging some territories here? 
Well, I like that. I, I mean, it's kind of transgressive, I think. You know, just, uh, uh, and I think, uh, in a, but, but in a way, I mean, African-American singers know both worlds. They live, they inhabit those both mm-hmm. worlds. You do. Uh, I, and and we, we, we all inhabit, and, that we, and as an African-American in this society, you, you, we all inhabit those, you know, the, 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 we, have, we always have those, those different worlds we, have, we inhabit. And I think bringing that together to me is, a, is so important because it's a bring, bringing a different reality to the stage and also the fact that how opera can speak to that. You know, that opera, opera um, does, is not just a European form. Well, opera, opera can be made in our image, made, made, that we can make opera what, what we want it to be. Oh, you've done that very cleverly, very cleverly. We went through some slides here. I wonder if we can back up and see a few of them, and you can tell us something about the characters and the scenes. Now, yeah. what's happening here? Well, that's the five with their parents, with different parents, uh, and, uh, and we had an ensemble of singers. They play parents and play different, different roles. Actually, the one on the far right also played Matthias Reyes later in the, uh, later in the opera. Uh, the woman who's on the second... Uh, from the right uh, plays Sharon Salam, who's uh, Youssef's mother, and she became very act, very, very active in there uh, w- with what I think the genesis of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and she's been active ever since. You know? Now, you've met, have you met the uh, actual men? Of yes. Portugal? And have they seen your opera? No, they have not seen my you've opera. You talked yet. about it with them. I did meet them. I met them in L.A. at the ACLU luncheon, and uh, I actually brought together. Three sets of the five: the, the original five, the five from the Netflix series, and the five from my opera. We're all at the same event, so that was that was quite something. And meeting them, I I had met Youssef Salam's sister before, and I'm meeting Youssef, and I had a lot a great conversation with him and and, and, and the others as well. It was and it was an amazing experience uh, yep. to do. I hope they have the opportunity to see it in the future. I'd be very interested to talk with them afterwards. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, do we have another slide? I think this speaks. Okay, for this is this is the example of actual press that was in uh, 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 in New York at the time. You know, the Central Park Horror, Wilding that we talked about before, street slang for for going berserk. It says, okay, and as we know, it's from the song with the wild thing, <laughs> wild thing. Uh, uh, so originally they, they held seven seven teens. Um, yeah. The portrait of rampage and rape without guilt. Okay, so so they were they were actually convicting them five in the in the in the press way before the even the, the trial happened. So this is Sharon Salam, who's who's uh, singing about uh, you know what what happened to her child, the, the loss of her child's innocence, Yusef, and uh, uh, she was prominent in, in a lot of New York One interviews with Sharon Salam at the time. And she was one of the most vocal of the parents. Um, and uh, she was a school teacher in, in, in New York at the time. And she, uh, she, as I said, she became really involved in trying to, to, to and getting their exoneration being when they were exonerated. Um, and uh, so, and politically, and she paid the price. I mean, she lost her job, et cetera, because she, she was a, such a strong advocate for her son and, and for the other four. Four out of the five, and that's her. Actually, during the trial, Sharon Salam actually disrupted the trial. In the middle of the trial, she got up and, and called them all liars. 
She said, you're liars. And this is something I was added in the opera from when we first did the, the first workshop performance in 2016 uh, and, and with the production in 2019 because uh, I, I started, re- I, I was researching the, the, the project and I, re- I realized that this dif- disruption happened in the court and I said, this is too operatic, you have to do that. <laughs> you have to have that. And so, so she, she really lays, lays into the, the district attorney. The, the central part of the abuse of the five was the fact that they were minors. And they were here they were being interrogated uh, over a, a long period of time, held without food or water, you know, for 36 hours, and, and basically forced to confess to the crime, saying that they would, you know, if they, they confessed to this, that they would, they, 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 and first trying to get them to turn on each other. Saying, well, did you see Yusuf do this? You know, we saw. Someone said that Yusuf threw the rock. Someone said that you know that uh, Raymond did that. And so, so it's a way that they, they try to, to to coerce their confessions. And so, the only evidence they really had in the case was the their forced confessions, because they had no DNA evidence. They never, there never was any DNA evidence tying them to the crime. Of course, DNA, a lot of the DNA stuff wasn't as developed in 1989 as was subsequently. When they found Matias Reyes, and they, they, they went back, and they, then they did find D, D, strong DNA evidence that Matias Reyes so did, was involved in crime. Did you consider actually staging and writing music for the interrogation? Because that sounds like a, a musical device of it's, back and forth. Oh, and it's fantastic. I mean, that was one of the challenges. And one of the things I was like, most excited about, how do I do the interrogation? And and that worked out worked fabulously well. I mean, um, I saw I thought of the music, the the kind of juxtaposing going from cell to cell very quickly. So we had these doors that opened up and they actually move the doors. So they're like two cells. So they the mask and the district attorney move in through the doors and and try to and it's disorienting. It's very disorienting, yeah. and and this idea of. Uh, and they're always shifting position. A clock is moving very... Uh, you see a clock above the stage moving. So this idea of the, how time is... What ha- what's happening in, a, you know, you know, on 10 minutes in stage is, is hours. And so, so the... Uh, and then, uh, then the rhythmic quality of the music, too, right. was, was something that was really interesting to me because I wanted to make it so that it, it's, it's propulsive and it's moving the action. Because a lot of... Well, uh, in my approach to opera, I'm very interested in, in the music carrying the action. I mean, in a way that I think is uh, it's different from other composers. Because I think of, uh, and for me, that's about the rhythmic interplay. Of, of, and I think a lot of that approach comes because uh, before I wrote music for opera, I did a lot of music for dance. And so, right. so, so when I think about, think about people on stage, I think of them, about them as moving bodies. So that it's not unlike you know writing music with working with a choreographer. So so a lot of what I when I envision an opera, I like to I try to see it on stage and to try to see the the, fit, the what's happening physically with the people on stage. This must drive you crazy writing a piece like this. It's in your heart, it's in your soul, and it's in oh your yeah, and 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 also um, you know trying to build up a, how they are how they're trying to break these boys down you know through through the interrogation. You ever been stopped by a cop? Yeah, good pop, bad cop stuff is. No, have you ever been stopped by? A yes, guy? so I you have. internalize that into that scene. 
Yeah, so some of that. I mean, I remember when I, actually my first time coming to California. What happened? Okay, I was. Oh, don't keep, keep it short. <laughs> keep it short and keep it clean. I'll keep it keep short and clean. Okay. Uh, I was driving from San, San Francisco to L.A. This is, must have been in this early 80s or 70s. And my, my, my father was, was in residence at Stanford. So, so I was going, my friend Wes Brown and my former, my ex-wife, uh, Deborah Atherton, we drove down to L.A. So we're stopped at a stoplight in Los Angeles. And a cop comes up, puts his thing on, comes up to us, and, and, and makes, makes me stop at the stoplight. So I said, oh, officer, what, you know, is there anything wrong? You know, what's, what's happening? See? So he goes to my, my wife, who is white, and said, are you okay? <laughs> you know, do, with these two African-American men. And the, said, are you okay? I'm, thank God she didn't hate me then. <laughs> <laughs> He said, "No, I'm telling you." He said, "She said she was okay." But but I'm I'm just saying, well, why would a cop, why this white cop stop, you know, stop us? Just ask if she's okay. You like it's like, okay. So and I was stopped another time. uh, I was stopped on. I was driving from New York to to Boston to play a gig with Anthony Braxton, and I was stopped on I-91 by a cop, and and he pulled the gun out. And I, was, I had to wait on the side of the road for an hour until he had backup, because they said someone meeting my description had robbed a bank in Hartford. So, so this is all in your head while you're thinking about this. <laughs> of course, yeah. Dad, had you? Um, I mean, it seems like this is the perfect setup to your next opera to be Scottsboro Boys. Well, they already did Scott the musical of that. I know, but you need to do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do the uh, Tulsa Race Massacre. In 1921. I was going to do that. I love doing operas that have, that have political import. You know, I think a lot of people don't know about the I mean, Watchmen series. I guess they showed a little bit of it. But they don't really know that this happened. It didn't just happen in Tulsa. It happened in Wilmington, North Carolina. And a, lot, a lot of black communities that were thriving were destroyed because, because of the jealousy. Mm. And so... Uh, you know, the, but uh, Tulsa, that was the black Wall Street, was in Greenwood. And so we have a plan to do the opera called Greenwood 1921, which is about, it's actually the 100th anniversary of, uh, of the massacre. It's coming up in t- a couple of years. So uh, we have another, another scene here, clip here. Maybe you can set it up for us. It's the uh, quintet, um, This World is Ours. What, what's behind that? What's the- Okay. Where is that in the opera? Well, this is when they were the kind of their feeling of before they're going into Central Park. You know, this world is ours. Hold your head. This kind of feeling of the exhilaration of youth. I mean, this is you know in a way setting up the loss of innocence because here here is the expression of innocence. You know, they're looking forward. Stand up, set up. The world is ours. You know, they 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 you know it's this it's open to them and and this theme comes back in different guises all the way through the opera. At the end of the opera, it come, comes back again. Uh, and, uh, and then it has this thing about Harlem is my home, Harlem when you're never alone. So I wrote this kind of thing. So, but but it, it's the closest thing I can get to kind of an anthem. I, I, you know, so every once in a while you have to write an anthem. So Absolutely. An anthem. <laughs> Maybe we can see that scene, uh, This World is Ours. The world is ours, hold your head This world is ours. When you pretend not to 
Sure. I hopefully hopefully we'll, we'll get a, a, a production in New York. We've had some interest from Atlanta and some other. Oh, it's got to be in New York. Yeah, New York is the place has to, has to be there. And I I'm going to talk to Eno about it, the English National Opera, because I have uh, there was a, a director there is interested in my music, so I hope maybe we can do it in England. Terrific. Yes. Uh, join me in thanking Anthony for this wonderful afternoon. Thank been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.